Well, if you do have a Bible, please meet me in Job chapter 6. This is week 6 of our study through the book of Job called If God is Good. Uh, I've been really blessed by the sermon prep and the time in this book. I've never preached through it before, and, and the Lord has really used it in, in powerful ways in my own life. We, we tend to think of the book of Job as being primarily about how to suffer, how to suffer well, and certainly that is uh, an aspect, and we do gain insight in that area, but it's actually a book about God's wisdom. It's a book about God's faithfulness, about God's kindness. And you know, when we, when we go to the Bible, we would be well served, actually, to, instead of looking at it like, where do I see myself in this story, but remembering that this is actually the story of God and His salvation in and through the person of Jesus uh, Janine and I lead a small group of, of young married couples, and we absolutely love this group. If you're not in a small group, by the way, um, this is the best way to experience real, authentic community. And uh, we're with uh, couples that have been married anywhere from, I guess at this point, maybe a year to four or five years, and it's an absolute blast. Um, they learn from us, and we learn from them. And we're, we're, we're studying, we're, we're growing in our understanding of God's grace together, and and we're learning new things from them each week. Now, sometimes, admittedly, it's random and pointless stuff that we learn from them, but um, it's good stuff. We, we, we've learned, for example, that, and I didn't realize this, that animated movies are just as much for adults as they are for kids. Um, we have groups, uh, several couples in our group that love going to see animated movies. We're also uh, informed by multiple couples that the new Puss in Boots movie is actually uh, Oscar-worthy, apparently. I've not seen it, but apparently a really, really good movie. Uh, we learned what are the not, uh, hot new TV shows. Um, and then we, one, of our, one of the ladies in our group is a, is a highly specialized ER nurse. Uh, last week, we learned some things about the human body that I, I would like to unlearn, uh, frankly. Um, uh, there's some images that, that may forever haunt me uh, that I've tried to purge from my mind, but I can't. Um, we're really enjoying our time together. When we first got to know the couples, we kind of went around the table, all sitting in our dining room, and we said, hey, what, what do you... What are you into? What do you like to do? And one of the young ladies said that she's into archery, so shooting arrows. So this is maybe the first person that, that I've met that, that is into this, and she explained how, you know, different types of bows and different types of arrows. And what she didn't realize at that time was that that would actually be very, very helpful for me in the preparation for today's message, because today, in the passage we're in this morning, Job actually employs an, this archery metaphor and makes reference to three different sort of directions uh, that arrows uh, would be shot. And so, if you haven't been with us, we're working our way through the book of Job, and uh, we kind of look at it section by section, and um, we're now at the point where Job will respond to Eliphaz. Eliphaz is one of Job's friends who has offered him some very unhelpful counsel. And this morning in chapter 6 and 7, Job will respond. And so Job's sitting... Uh, he, he spent seven days in silence, sitting uh, in, in a pile of, of dust and ashes, uh, scraping his open wounds with broken pottery, and he is, he's had everything taken from him, everything that he cares for, everything that he loves, with the exception of his wife. So his kids have been taken, all of them, they've all died, everything he possessed, all of his, uh, everything that he owned, his livelihood, he's been sitting there grieving, and he doesn't know why. He has no idea why this is happening, but here comes Eliphaz, his friend, and Eliphaz has the answer as to why Job is suffering. He says, the reason you're suffering is because you've sinned against God and you've refused to repent. So just acknowledge your sin. 
Just acknowledge your sin before the Lord, and then God will relent of the suffering that he has inflicted on you. Well, uh, this is not the best theology. It's not the best advice. And today we're going to look at Job's response, which he really breaks down into kind of three arrows, uh, so to speak. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, we have the arrows of God, uh, which pierce and nearly destroy Job, at least by Job's estimation. And then in chapter 6, verses 14 through 21, Job's the one shooting the arrows, only this time the arrows are directed toward his friends. And then in chapter 7, Job turns his scope to God and actually shoots his arrows toward God in the form of lament or complaint. So this morning, we're going to look at those three arrows and see what we can learn about ourselves, uh, the human experience, and, and also the mercy of God. So I'm not going to read every verse in both of these chapters, but I'll just, uh, we'll, we'll uh, look, look at most of it. So let's begin by looking at Job chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord reads this way. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balance. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the, low, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. So the book of Job, we, we, we have this heavenly council, this heavenly court, so to speak, at the beginning, the first uh, couple chapters. And then, uh, and then toward the end of the book, God will speak. And of course, it's, because it's God speaking, it's very powerful, incredible stuff. But in the middle, you have multiple exchanges between Job and his friends. So Job's friends will come along and they'll offer him advice or counsel or some sort of answer to his problems, and then Job will respond to that. Well, last week, Eliphaz had his own counsel, and then Job responds in verses uh, 6 and 7. And Job, you know, he responds to Eliphaz's retribution theology by, by basically letting out this sort of emotional outburst. So Job just kind of lets it all out there. He's very open. He's very, he's very emotional. And even though Job, Job doesn't believe he's a perfect man, he doesn't think that he's a blameless, sinless man, he, he just doesn't know what sin that he could have possibly committed that would result in this punishment from God. And furthermore, he doesn't really believe in his friend's theological perspective. He doesn't buy into this idea that if you're suffering, it's necessarily because you're a bad person and if things are going really well for you, it's necessarily because you're a good person. Job just doesn't buy it. And frankly, Job is really stung by what his friends will say to him. I think we can actually say his friends, quote, counsel crushes Job. So Job says he imagines that his pain, if his pain could be weighed on a scale, it would weigh more than the sand on the seashores. And Job believes that his anguish is caused by God's directions. He says he's been shot by the arrows of the Almighty. He imagines that God is using him as target practice. Have you ever seen a, a movie or a show where someone is at a, a, a range and, and they're shooting and, and then they, they mechanically or they, they, they bring the target closer 
and you see that the target that they've been shooting at is actually someone they know. It's a, maybe a former friend or an enemy. Well, Job has this idea that God has Job's face in the crosshairs of his bow. And then Job makes a comparison to the wild animals. Just as wild animals complain when they don't have suitable food, what Job has been dished out by God, so to speak, is impossible to take in. Now, let's continue, verses 8 through 13. Job says, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? So Job is at the end of his rope, so to speak. Uh, he's desperate for relief. And he really wants more than anything else just to be free from this pain. So he says, look, even if God would crush me, at least that would spell the end to my suffering. He has several rhetorical questions to express his impatience, his longing. Where can I find the strength to wait? Verse 11, but God is not ready to respond to him. God will respond, we're going to see, uh, but he's not going to respond just yet. Job must wait. Man, that's hard, isn't it? Job must wait. In God's wisdom, the time has not come for Job to be vindicated. As I mentioned, this book is as much or more about God than it is really us, although certainly we can find our place in that story. But here's what we learn from this first section. It's our first point this morning. In God's good providence, painful waiting is an inescapable part of the human experience. Of all the, the Western values that we've sort of amalgamated into our own perspective, our own lives, there is perhaps none more cherished than speed. We want what we want when we want it. It's why when I go to the McDonald's by my house, I, I never get in line. I just go to one of the kiosks and I, and I quickly try to beat the person who's in the kiosk across from me. I want what I want. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait to have my order taken. We, we, we just really value and cherish speed. And because of technology, which I'm not against, but because of things are getting faster and smaller in terms of technology, we have even a harder time waiting. Well, the Christian life is actually one of waiting. We saw this, we see this every year at Christmas during the season of Advent, um, that we have our feet kind of one foot in, 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 in each world, two worlds. And, and one of that is the, the, the here, the right now, the, the, the last days, so to speak, that were inaugurated by the Advent, the coming of Jesus. But then we look forward to that, that, that not yet, that's, it's, it hasn't arrived yet, but the complete consummation of Christ's kingdom and as we wait, we suffer. And as we wait, we deal with heartache and hardship and brokenness and so on. But waiting is part of the Christian experience. It's a regular refrain in the life of faith. We see it all throughout the scripture. The prophet Isaiah cries out, O oh Lord, we wait for you. Your name and, your, and remembrance are the desire of our soul. The psalmist says over and over and over, he sings, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word, I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning sun. What, what, what do we do when we wait? You know, maybe you're in a situation now where things are just not going the way you want and, and you have something you're just longing to see take place. What do we do when we wait? Well, we trust in the promises of God, which is where Job will ultimately land. We don't see it this morning in this passage, but the English Puritan William Gurnall, who was actually influential in the life of Charles Spurgeon, wrote this, wait on God as long as you have to. The fullest mercies are the ones we wait for the longest. Hope assures the soul that while God waits to perform one promise, he supplies another. This comfort is enough to quiet the heart of anyone who understands the sweetness of God's methods. There's not one minute when a believer's soul is left without comfort. There is always some promise standing ready to minister to the Christian until another one comes. And so what he's saying is while we wait, we, we look to and rest in the promises of God. And in those promises that we've not yet seen fulfilled or that maybe we're not experiencing at the moment, we look to the other promises of God. And so maybe, you know, God, one of God's promises is that those who are in him will experience peace. And maybe right now that's not your experience. You're not at peace. You're at peace with God. You've been reconciled to God because you're in Christ, but you're not experiencing relational peace or vocational peace or emotional peace. So what do you do while you wait? Well, you look to the other promises of God, one being that he will always be with you at every moment, that he is with us at every Second, there's never been one part of redemptive history, one millisecond where Christ was not present with his own. And so when you look and you see, well, that, that promise doesn't ring true yet in my own experience, it's not because God's promises aren't true, it's because we have ourselves a jaded perspective, or perhaps it's a promise that God will one day fulfill we may not be enjoying the promise, for example, of, of answered prayer, at least the, the way that we want to see prayer answered. Yeah, we know that the Scriptures tell us to ask and we will receive. Well, when that's the case, we look to God's promise that He loves us and His love is steadfast and it is unfailing. And so, we, so while we wait on God, we trust in His promises. So Job has responded to what he calls the arrows of the Almighty. Now, now Job has some arrows of his own fire off at his friends. Uh, look at uh, chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, then we'll jump down to verse 24. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. Now scan down to verses 24 through 30. Teach me and I'll be silent. This is again Job talking to his friends. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. And then there's a slight turn here in terms of Job's emotion. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? You have to respect the way Job talks to his friends. I mean, he's very direct, 
uh, he goes right at it. And this is, this is by the way, the, this is the way it is with real friends. Real friends are honest and transparent and straightforward with each other. Proverbs say that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. It means that you know, our fr- it's through our friends that God really pours out His grace. And If you can't be honest with a friend, then that person's hardly a true friend. Job is painfully honest. In fact, he dismantles his friend's advice, even while he still calls them brothers, verse 13. He says, you guys are like a stream of water that appears after a heavy rain, and then it just dries up and disappears. In other words, your wisdom is not reliable. He said, you're like travelers who get lost along the way and then end up driving in circles, not actually getting anywhere. He says, you're like an empty riverbed, providing no real lasting help. And then he says in verse 14, he says, but look, I'm here. I'm listening. If you've got something meaningful to say, bring it on. But you haven't convinced me of anything just yet. And I love verses 20 and 21. Job says, they are ashamed because they, they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Job says, look, you've come at me. You, you come at me in attack mode. And now you're ashamed of me. You're afraid to get too close because you think you may be guilty by association. You think God may actually punish you just for being my friend. Old Testament scholar Francis Anderson writes, their cautious response betrays an unwillingness to get too involved with a former friend who they suspect is now under the displeasure of God. So their bad theology has resulted in a condemning attitude toward a man they once regarded as a righteous man. In fact, a man they once said, and we've seen even by Eliphaz's own testimony, they once regarded as one of the most wisest men around who helped plenty of people. And now they see what he's going through and they think, well, wait a second, this is God's punishment and I dare not get too close. And then Job says again in verses 28 through 30, and I'm I'm reading this again for, for, for a point, but now be pleased to look at me for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. There's a real hopeful entreaty. Let no injustice be done. Turn now by vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Job calls on them to turn back to him. And you can tell by the language that he believes that they might do that. Job pleads with his friends to look him in the face. And he assumes that they will. Now here's our second point. Our friends will inevitably fail us since they're sinful people like we are. But that should not cause us to abandon hope. Real, meaningful relationships are are hard work, aren't they? I mean, they're they're difficult. We put ourselves out there. We're real, and we, we, we take our metaphorical mask off, and we're just real and honest with people, and then they turn around sometimes and use the very things we've shared against us. And that hurts. And sometimes we, we get really close to someone only to see them turn on us or betray us or abandon us when we most need them. And I know people, and I'm sure you do as well, who have said, you know what, I've been hurt so many times, I'm not even going to put myself out there again. I'm just going to keep my walls up and I'm going to remain guarded and I'm not going to let anyone close to me again. But that's no way to live, is it? I mean, that's an empty way to live. And it leads to loneliness 
And not just that, it leads to short relationships because we're all going to hurt each other in some way eventually. Well, and maybe, maybe you're in a situation where you've had someone, and when I say that, you think immediately of someone. There's a face that comes to mind. Maybe you've been hurt by someone recently or not so recently. Maybe you've had someone turn your back on you. Well, God can redeem your situation. And he delights in bringing about redemption. He delights in restoring relationships, even the ones that seem impossible from a human vantage point. I've had, over two decades of pastoral ministry, I've had three times I've been required to oversee the discipline process of staff members at the church that I've had to let go because of moral failure. Two pastors and another one was a director. And, and incredibly, now 20 years later, I'm, I actually enjoy real meaningful friendships with all three of these people. That I've had to go in one place, well, multiple times, to their house and confront them and see actually and relieve them of their pastoral position. And yet God has done a miraculous work and that there, we still have a relationship. I still text these guys. So if you are in a situation you feel like, just beyond hope. You can take heart. God is a redeeming God. And, and Job knows this. This is why he has hope. It's not a hope in humanity. It's a hope in God's redemptive activity. Job believes that God is a redeeming God. Even in his pain, even in his misery, he still believes that God is about redemption. Now, Job's relationship with God is fascinating, frankly. He has tremendous concern for God's glory. We saw this earlier in, in Job's concern that his own children might, uh, at, at this party they were celebrating, they might actually dishonor God in their hearts, and so he makes sacrifices for them. He's very concerned uh, that God is honored and that God is glorified with every aspect of his life. He keeps short accounts with God. He communes deeply with God. And because of that, he has a closeness that allows him to speak very directly with God. I told you that this section was about three arrows. We've looked at God's arrows into Job, as Job would characterize it. We've looked at Job's arrows into his friend, and now Job will focus his own arrows back at God in the form of a complaint. Look at uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Has not man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who, long, who looks for his wages. So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are appointed to me, apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I'm full of tossing till dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The first part of this chapter shows that God, uh, Job understands something of the sin-cursed nature of this world. In fact, it's language that, that takes us back to the fall of Adam and Eve and God's curse on the earth as a result of their rebellion. One of the effects of, of Adam and Eve's rebellion um, is that man's life would now be characterized by hard painful, laborious work. 
So work, which was meant to be enjoyable, life-giving, productive, would now be draining and difficult and exhausting because God would curse the ground and creation would be separated from the imminent presence of God. <clears throat> Over the last couple of days, uh, Friday and Saturday, my daughter, uh, Julia, and my wife and I, we, we did a little two-day two kind of whirlwind trip to Ohio to tour, to do a college tour. It was actually our alma mater, and so we were able to get there, and it was really a beautiful experience. Um, we saw a lot of things that you know were there when we were there, and things that weren't there that are new, and and so Julie was able to experience over you know basically you know a day and and, and a half you know this school and trying to consider whether she might go there. And well, we went on the, the, there are several different weekends that prospective students can tour. We went on the theater weekend. Julie is you know she loves theater, and so we went when all the theater kids were there, which was fun, but I have to say it was kind of exhausting because even just saying hello was just like, well, hi and big and demonstrated and theatrical and everything was just, I mean, I was just worn out after 15 minutes of it. Um, but it was a really, it was a sweet experience. But one of the things that, you know, in those tours that you're trying to figure out is not just if you're going to go to school there, but also what are you going to do for a living? And what students get over and over and over again, which is really not helpful, is they're told, find something you love to do, and you'll never work a day in your life. Anybody ever told you this? You ever said that to anybody? Well, that's not really true, is it? Because it doesn't matter what you do, work is work. And, and work is, is, you know, I, I, I do what I love to do and what God's called me to do, and I praise God for that all the time. But there are some days I go home and I'm just worn out, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Work is not easy. Work is difficult. And Job, he sees this. He, he knows, he recognizes this in verse 1. Do not mortals have hard service on earth? Are not their days like those of hired laborers? Job understands something of the curse that, that resides on this world. Virtually every person of every religion acknowledges that something happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden. Now, what happened and the extent to, to which it would affect humanity has been debated over centuries. But I use this diagram in our Capshaw Academy class last semester, our Difficult Doctrines class, and I, I want to show it again because I think it will be helpful. This kind of gives you an idea of sin's swath of destruction. And so if you look at the center, the, the, the most painful and the hardest part of the, the curse of sin is to individuals. So individuals are born with a sin curse, separated from God in need of a Savior. But then you expand out and, and, and you see how that, that this, the effect of sin affects, or affects our world, the earth, animals, and so on, uh, society and individuals. It goes on and on. The swath of sin's destruction starts at the center and it works its way outward meaning that there's nothing that was created that went unscathed by the curse of sin and the rebellion of our first parents. It means that we live on a broken planet. Broken people living on a broken planet with other broken people. The reason we suffer, the reason we get in fights, the reason we get sick, the reason people can't get along, the reason we have violence and hatred and divorce and animosity, the reason that nations are at war with each other, all of that's because of the curse of sin. 
This world is under the curse of sin. It is at odds with God. We're, we're not born naturally good people. We are born at odds with God, separated from the God who made us. Now, because we're image bearers of God, every person is of great worth, of tremendous value at the fundamental level. We might say the ontological level. We are, we are of great worth before God. We're designed to mirror and image our Creator. And despite the fall of Adam and Eve, every human being retains an element of that God-endowed goodness. But spiritually, ethically, we have an unsolvable problem. One, at least one we can't solve. Because of the aforementioned rebellion of our first parents in the garden, the curse of sin has been passed down from generation to generation. From Adam all the way to us. Sin and corruption and death and condemnation entered the world by one man, and so we all suffer. But God didn't just leave us alone in our helpless condition. He cares deeply about us. Even in the midst of this terrible struggle, Job realizes this on some level. Look at verses 17 uh, through 21. Job says, What is man that you make so much of him? And that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have, you, why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job is torn here, and you, you probably sense that on some level. He is both praising God, uh, but he's also complaining to God. And this is what we do, isn't it? I mean, this is kind of a normal human experience. We have good days, and we have bad days. And we have good days where we just we praise God for His good providence in our life and the way He's directing us and His sovereignty, and we have bad days when we just can't make sense of any of it. We have productive thoughts, and we have aimless, less-than-productive thoughts. It's, it's certainly part of the human experience, but it's definitely part of mourning, part of grieving. And Job is vacillating. On one hand, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you care so much about him? In other words, in this great universe, and here we are, tiny specks on it, why do you care so much about us? It's an incredible thing. Why should this holy, exalted God who is high and lifted up, why should you care about lowly humanity. So in one sense, Job is, is blown away that the creator of the universe would take an interest in humanity and praises God for that. But there's also a complaint in here. Job says in verse 19, not just how incredible it is, God, that you see me, but why do you keep staring at me? He says, why don't you look away from me? Why do you keep focusing so intently on me? Why don't you look in another direction just for a minute? And take your eye off of me. Why have you made me, verse 20, Job says, your target? So there's something deep in Job's question that I think is pretty incredible. You have to pull on the thread a little bit, but it's there. Job says, what is man that you are mindful of him? In other words, God, why would you care about humanity? Now, this is the same thing that King David would ask when King David 
at a low point, he looks and he considers the greatness and the majesty of God, he would say in Psalm 8, what is, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And then the writer of Hebrews would actually employ that exact same phrase in Hebrews chapter 2, only when the writer of Hebrews says it, he makes a connection to Jesus. He writes, for it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, this is a reference to Psalm 8, Job 7, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering uh, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the writer of Hebrews goes where Job is not quite able to get just yet. He sees God's love for humanity, not just in that God is present and mindful of his creation, but he's also made a way of salvation. You know, the messed up world uh, that we just talked about and I showed you the chart of and all the implications and the effects of sin, this broken world. Well, God sent his son into that broken world to redeem it, to initiate a new age of God's redemptive activity. Far from being, being cold and distant, God cares so much about his world and his people that he sent his son to live, die, and be raised again. To, to redeem that sin-cursed and broken world. So here's the, the final point this morning. We learned this from God's arrows toward Job and how the New Testament would use that. The ultimate display of God's concern for us is His gift to us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a pretty fascinating, it's an amazing thing when you think about how big, how incredibly expansive and amazing our, our, our galaxy is. It's in some ways in beyond our, our mind's comprehension. And yet, even in the midst of that incredible, expansive galaxy and the eight billion-odd people who are living, God actually cares individually, about each one of us individually. God actually knows and cares about everything we go through. And there are a lot of ways that God shows His concern for us, but none greater than the gift of His Son. What is man that you are mindful of him, Job asks, as he marvels that God would care about every detail of humanity? What is man that you are mindful of him, David asks, as he stands in awe that the creator of the universe would pay attention to his creatures? What is man that you are mindful of him, the writer of Hebrews asks, as he reflects on God's plan to save the world by sending his own son to suffer and die and then be raised again? Through his active obedience, that is, fully obeying all the commands of God, and through his passive obedience, what the writer of Hebrews will call tasting death, his death, Jesus makes it possible for us to have something we can never gain on our own, and that is a restored relationship with the creator of the universe, a relationship in which we can actually cry out to the living God as Abba, Father. 
Jesus makes it possible for us to receive as a gift forgiveness, healing, again, access to the very throne of God. Now, that in itself doesn't immediately remove our suffering. The world is still messed up. Our lives are still messed up. We don't want to fight with each other, but we do. We don't want to be embroiled in conflict, but we are. No one wants to be an alcoholic or or an addict. No one wants his marriage to end in divorce, but it happens. We're unable to fix ourselves, our family, or our world. We're created to, to rule the world, but it seems like the world rules us. And the more we turn inward looking for solutions, the more empty we are and the more hopeless we become. And the more in our face uh, our futility becomes. But because of God's mindfulness of humanity, He descended into the depths of our brokenness. In the person of Christ, in Jesus, God Himself took the consequences of our arrogance our ignorance, our selfishness, our rebellion, and he bore the wrath of God in our place. And he was raised again as evidence that his sacrifice for us was sufficient. Jesus reveals that God is not a distant, impersonal being, nor an angry judge using our faces for target practice, but a loving father gathering his hurting children to himself to heal, forgive, and redeem. In his lowest point, as of yet, Job realizes that there is a God, and God cares about humanity. Now again, there's a mix of both praising and complaining here, but but Job understands God sees and cares about humanity. And he'll use a phrase that the, the New Testament writers will say, the greatest will help us to understand the greatest care the greatest concern, the greatest act of compassion and love that God would show for his hurting humanity would be by sending his son. Just a moment, we're going to pray, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And I mentioned we're kind of caught in between two worlds. Well, one of the things the Lord's table helps us to do is to, in a very tactile way, is to celebrate and look forward to the new earth where we will feast with the risen Savior forever. It's a time for us to reflect on where we are with God. It's something we do as believers. And so if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ, uh, we, we welcome you to participate in this ordinance that the Lord himself commanded. If you don't know Jesus, we're, we're thrilled you're here. We're really glad you're here. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, then there's no shame in letting the elements pass. That's what you should do. But maybe as the elements pass you, it's a chance for you to consider, where do I stand with God? And why do I continue to resist his invitation to repent and believe? Let's pray.